you. Amen. Well, welcome, everyone. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. Good morning. Good morning. God bless you. Uh, looks like we got a few families out today, but most everyone's here. Wonderful. Got a few visitors here with us today. So welcome. Glad that you guys are here. Let's go into God's Word. <laughs> Amen. Here's the question I want to ask you. I mean, what, what is your reaction to authority? You ever pondered that? Authority. I mean, this is a new year. I think this is a time where a lot of... We, we, we can... Re, reassess our perspectives, isn't it? Uh, we, we, may all, we may often say that we're subject to authority, and all of us are to some extent. We all have bosses. We all have someone we're accountable to. But I think that deep down, if we honestly look at our sin, I think we find that we often only recognize our own authority over our own lives, don't we? That's the root of the sin. We only recognize our authority over our own lives, and it's a misguided perception. I mean, our sin focuses on ourselves. We're the only authority. That's the root of it. So today's passage in Matthew uh, chapter 21 uh, begins the final days of Jesus's ministry. We, we took a small break from Matthew's gospel during the Advent season and Christmas. Uh, but now we're going to go back into Matthew at chapter 21. And this chapter begins the final days of Jesus' ministry. Matthew's gospel has shown us who Jesus is by showing us his miracles. All of Matthew's gospel does this. Shows us his miracles and also shares his greatest teachings. The Sermon on the Mount is found in this wonderful gospel. All of Matthew's gospel describes the kingdom of heaven. Just a reminder, this is what the theme of Matthew's gospel is. It's a central theme. It's describing the kingdom of heaven. And remember that Jesus began his ministry by preaching the message to the people in Capernaum right after his uh, 40 days of, of, of wilderness uh, temptations. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 4:17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
This was all, this was the central aspect of Jesus's ministry. And then again, Matthew tells us that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's Matthew 4, 23. The theme of the kingdom climaxes in the final chapters here of Matthew's gospel. Chapters 21 through 28 is the climax of the kingdom. And today's passage in 21, Matthew 21, is, is really setting the stage for this. Today, Matthew shares with us the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem. This is a text that we normally preach on Palm Sunday. But I want us to take a look at this today and look at the idea of, of the kingdom here. I mean, Jesus had been in the city of Jerusalem many times throughout his ministry and his life. But he enters Jerusalem this day in a different way. Today, in this text, he enters in a, if you really want to consider it, it's really a grand performance, a great spectacle, a with a purpose. Jesus does this on purpose to declare his royal authority. And so the final chapters of Matthew's gospel are going to focus on Christ's authority. The challenges to his authority, his teachings on authority, even through parables, and his warning to the arrogance of authority that is found in the Pharisees and the scribes, and even to a barren fig tree. We're going to see that in these final chapters here. So if you're able to stand, will you stand with me, please, in reverence for the reading of God's word? We're going to read Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he said, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and the, that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Mm. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for sharing with us this important scene, this important historical and real event that occurred as your son Jesus comes to Jerusalem with a purpose. He comes to be convicted, to be crucified, to be buried, and to raise again. And this is the beginning of his final days on this earth of ministry. 
So God, I pray this morning that you would cause us to see what it is that Matthew's gospel is wanting us to see. You, you intend for us to see Jesus not just merely as another historical figure or another good prophet. You intend for us to see Jesus for who he truly is. He is the great king who has authority over your kingdom. And so God, this morning as we begin a new year, Lord, will you take this passage and use it for your glory within us? Will you take this passage and and teach us how to be humble but also excited and to, to submit under the authority of your Son, Jesus Christ, in all things? Because he declares himself to be the King, the humble King, who brings righteousness and salvation for us all. So, Lord, let this day be for your glory and for our edification. Help us, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Here in verses 1 and 2, we see the simple authority of Jesus as, what does He do? He directs two of His disciples to go ahead of Him to procure a donkey and her colt. Now, notice that the, the disciples here are unnamed. But what we see here, there are two aspects that we see in this initial authority of Jesus as he directs his disciples. First, the disciples accepted Jesus' authority as rabbi and as their leader by doing what he requested of them. So there we see some authority. But secondly, we see Jesus' authority of prophecy about the immediate future. He told these two what they would find in the village ahead of them and even what would be said to them. You see Jesus' authority here in that? Just those first little verses. Jesus has a lot of insight here. He has a lot of authority here. So now why does Jesus do this? Why does he send his disciples ahead of him? I mean, this account here that we have in Matthew 21 is also found in Mark and Luke's gospel. So the synoptic gospels all include this important scene. I mean, there's no indication here that Jesus was tired. I mean, he's been journeying, he's been ministering, um, and, and now he's coming to Jerusalem. It says in verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. We don't get the indication here that Jesus was tired or weary, so that's why he asked for a ride. Remember, most people walked where they needed to go in that time. But his journey to Jerusalem was long in coming. So if he needed rest by riding on a beast of burden, I mean, we couldn't blame him, but I don't think that was the reason here. But what we see in this scene is that Jesus had a purpose. Remember, God does nothing arbitrarily. We saw this last week, and we looked at uh, uh, Joseph and Mary's coming to Bethlehem. All of human history worked to that one moment. God orchestrated through his providence all things. And so we even see here, as Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, this is not an arbitrary arrival. He is God is not random in his actions, neither is his son. So the son of God had a purpose for this event. And Matthew tells us why. I mean, Jesus knew that his death was near. His suffering was certain and his death was necessary. His time was short. But think about this. Jesus intended to show here his royal authority on this particular day. One week before his crucifixion and then his resurrection. 
From Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was first baptized and he began his ministry, all the way now to Matthew 21, Jesus demonstrated by example of humility the nature of his kingdom. Can't overlook that reality. I mean, the, the same is evident here, even in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem as a conquering king, he is a king of lowly humility and of peace here. The theme of humility continues as the nature of his kingdom. And Jesus, throughout his whole ministry, avoided the title of king. Anytime that anyone came to him and wanted to make him king, he rejected it. But on this day, Jesus had a purpose to show himself as the coming king. On this day. Because he does it in his terms and in his way. Here, Jesus goes to great lengths to actually show a public performance. I don't use that word to show that he was acting in any way. He was true and he was real in everything he does. But in this entry into Jerusalem, he is directing every step. And you got, it, it is, it was a public spectacle but one that was rightly due and one that fulfilled prophecy. I mean, Jesus openly, publicly showcases the nature of his kingdom here for a reason. He openly declares himself king of the kingdom of heaven by riding on a donkey into the great city of God. Jesus intended in these final days of his earthly ministry to commence his reign openly for all to see. He was not holding back, was he? That's what we see here. So let's look here in verse 5. This whole scene would have been a ridiculous display if you think about it, if it was anybody else. And I'm confident that other self-proclaimed messiahs of the day had probably undertaken more ludicrous displays of public performance in the past. Because we do know from Scripture that it was not just Jesus who was the Messiah. There were many false messiahs in that day proclaiming to be the Messiah. And the truth was always revealed when they were crucified or executed for their insurrection. They didn't come up out of the grave and all of their followers dissipated. Jesus was different. If it had been anybody else doing what Jesus did this day, it would have been a laughing stock. It would have been, wow, look at that idiot. But this is Jesus here. He does this on purpose. Here Jesus is not ridiculous. He's riding on a lowly donkey, not as a laughing stock. And it was not Jesus' way of mocking the role of a king. But instead, Jesus does this to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. That's what verse 5 tells us. Zechariah's prophecy of a great and humble king who would be coming to Jerusalem to redeem God's people and to be their salvation. That's why Jesus does this. To fulfill the prophecy. God does nothing arbitrarily. It's all, it all has a meaning here. All, I mean, now, if it had not been for Zechariah's prophecy, then surely Jesus would have only been a laughing spectacle for all to see. But it was Zechariah's prophecy that leads to this day, and Jesus understood his role. I will fulfill what my Father in heaven said would happen. That's why I'm doing this. Only Matthew's account 
connects the event of Jesus' arrival here in, uh, to Jerusalem, uh, arrival in Jerusalem to Zechariah's prophecy. Only Matthew does this. Mark and Luke's account speaks of the day from different perspectives, but they don't include the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah. Only Matthew does this. Here in Matthew 21, 5, the prophecy of Zechariah, if you're taking notes, is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But it's shown as the Old Testament evidence of Jesus' authority and reason for riding a donkey on this day. Matthew is really good about this in his gospel. He connects a lot of the Old Testament prophecies to Jesus in his gospel to further show his authority and who he truly is. Same thing's happening here. Right? The intentional choice here of riding on a donkey was God's way of publicly declaring once again that the nature of the kingdom of heaven was this, humility, humility, and lowly status. That's the nature of the kingdom. God's kingdom is built on humility, and God's kingdom is built on carrying the burden of all of our sin for us. That's what we looked at over the Advent season, that the purpose of the Advent The purpose of the incarnation was so that God would take upon himself, take into himself our weaknesses, our sin, so that we would no longer have to carry that. That's what Jesus is doing here. Just as the donkey is a lowly and humble animal, and I can, can we just argue that the donkey is also pretty stubborn? Does that sound like any of us in this room? Amen. <laughs> I mean, the, the beast of burden here, he carries the burdens placed upon it. That's what a donkey does. And Jesus, likewise, is a humble king who carries the burdens of all sins, but he does so willingly. He's not doing so like a donkey does in rebellion and, and, and stubbornness. Jesus does this out of humility and willingness, but he carries the burden of our sin upon himself. He places all of this on himself. No one sets the burden upon him. He takes it willingly. Actually, he also takes it with authority. Who else has the authority to say, give me that sin now? How many of us in this room would say, give me your sin? I'd probably avoid that, wouldn't you? But here Jesus willingly says, I will be the beast of burden for your sin. He then sits upon this beast of burden. But as he does so, what's he doing? He's carrying salvation with him. To fully understand the significance of Jesus' arrival here in Jerusalem, I think we need to understand the prophecy of Zechariah. Let's read this in Matthew 21, 5, and then we're going to flip over to Zechariah's prophecy. In Matthew 21, 5, he says, say, say to the, well, actually verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew cites Zechariah's prophecy. If you're able, flip over to Zechariah chapter 9. Keep a finger in in Matthew 21, but but flip over to Zechariah chapter 9. I don't want to read all of it, but I encourage you not not just to read verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9. Read 
verses one through nine to get the context here. The, the, the minor prophets of the Old Testament, and, and here's a, a, another shameless plug. Wednesday nights, we're going through the 12 minor prophets, right? And so come with us Wednesday night sometime and we dive deep into it and we, we find these little nuggets of, of wisdom and these nuggets of prophecy in the minor prophets that all point to Christ. It's a wonderful thing. The minor prophets of the Old Testament are commonly found in what is called the Book of the Twelve. It was a compiled scroll of all 12 minor prophets and the reason that we still hold the minor prophets valuable in scripture is because from the very beginning of the collection of these 12 minor prophets, it, they, they were revered by the Jewish people from the earliest days, from the very beginning of when they were written. They saw the value of these minor prophets and their, and, and their prophecies, and they collected them in what is called the book of the 12 from the earliest days. Up until now, they still have, they still have merit and value. Zechariah's prophecy is one of the 12, and this prophecy has, and here's the big word again, the eschatological character about it. Remember what eschatological means? Eschatology is the understanding of future end times, prophecies. So there is an eschatological end times, an attitude of judgment in it. The temple is the focus in Zechariah's prophecy, and so it's not surprising that Jerusalem and the temple figure prominently in Zechariah's end-time vision. I'm, sa- I'm laying this out for us to understand why Matthew is showing this in his gospel. Why is it that, that Jesus is fulfilling this? Because Zechariah had a future end-time vision about Jerusalem and the temple. The central theme of the prophecy is the kingdom of God. Even Zechariah's prophecy focused on the kingdom of God coming. See the connection with Matthew? I mean, it's, it is then fitting that Matthew's emphasis on the kingdom of God and his gospel connects to Zechariah's emphasis. For Zechariah, Jerusalem's chief glory was the presence of God within it. That's what Zechariah prophesied. The kingdom then is realized when God would be with his people. God, in Zechariah's prophecy, in Zechariah 1.14, God has an exceedingly jealousy for Jerusalem. In Zechariah 1.14, here's what God says, So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Now, who was this angel in Zechariah's prophecy? I don't want to get into it too much. That'll take us too far off the path. But Zechariah's prophecy is unique in all of the Old Testament prophets in that an angel of the Lord spoke to Zechariah. <coughs> Many scholars agree, and I agree, there was Jesus himself, a Christophany, speaking to Zechariah, telling Zechariah, here's what I'm going to do someday. But there's a jealousy here. This angel of the Lord in Zechariah looks to him and says, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, that helps us understand Jesus and what he, why he was coming to Jerusalem that day. He was jealous for Jerusalem. He was jealous for his people. He was coming and arriving on this donkey on the back of a, a breast of burden to show them how much he loved them. 
Also in Zechariah, Jerusalem is said to be rebuilt, but rebuilt without walls. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 says this, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in their midst. Now imagine that in connection with the scene of Jesus in the midst of the crowds coming to Jerusalem to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. He's coming to build a new Jerusalem, one without walls. Why? Because he would be the protection for them. He would hedge around his people as he dwells with them to be that wall of fire that protects them. And the Lord will be the glory in the midst of them. That's the imagery of Zechariah. Lastly, God's jealousy and wrath for Jerusalem in Zechariah's prophecy would lead to its salvation. He will dwell in the city and in Jerusalem. Here's, here's, here's what he said. Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. That's Zechariah 8, verses 2 through 3. Zechariah also speaks of the day when God dwells with his people that he will take on the role of priest and king. Remember the idea of the temple here in the midst of the city. And so the coming king would be also a priest, a priest king. The role of the priest and the king is resolved in Jesus Christ. I know in the adult Bible studies on Sunday mornings, you guys have been going through Hebrew, uh, Hebrews. I know you've already been looking at that. Jesus as the priest king. I mean, it's all throughout scripture. And even in Zechariah's prophecy, it's the theme. The role of the priest and the king clearly is, is resolved in Christ here, for he is conceived of as a priest king. And the temple he builds is not a literal temple, but instead consists of the new people of God. Again, a temple without walls. The church that is in, in, he invites in includes the Gentile nations to also be the kingdom of heaven. So physical barriers between us will fall. And what will unite us All of God's people, no matter where we come from and who we are, is the centrality of Christ dwelling with us. That's the prophecy of Zechariah. And so Zechariah speaks of this day. The role of the priest king is here. Zechariah 9 is the focus of Matthew's fulfillment. So chapters 1 through 8 of Zechariah that I've just kind of walked us through leads to Zechariah chapter 9, and it's the focus of Matthew's statement in Matthew 21, verse 4 and 5. When he says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I mean, again, Zechariah is difficult to understand for many scholars because it does have this apocalyptic end-of-the-world tone to it. Zechariah chapter 9 speaks of Israel's enemies finally being destroyed in verses 1 through 8. And that God will protect his people at his house. That's in verse 8. Let's go ahead and read Zechariah 9 verse 8 and then Zechariah 9 9. The wording is a little bit different than what Matthew has. Zechariah 9 verse 8. 
This is God speaking. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that no one shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see the context here? The coming king that is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9 is coming to encamp around and within his people to guard them from the enemy. That's why when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on the day that he does, this was in the mindset of the people. Zechariah says that God will protect his people at his house. It is this, it's important to take the warnings of God here in Zechariah 9 as the context of what happens in Matthew 21. Here's what he says in verses 9, or chapter 9, verse 9, actually verse, chapter 9, verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them for now I see with my own eyes. God is telling them in this prophecy in Zechariah, no one else, no one will ever conquer you again because I will be with you. I mean, these words from the prophet certainly were part of the thinking again of the great crowds when they saw Jesus coming. They saw Jesus as the priest king. That's how they viewed him that day. He was the priest king, the one bringing salvation to them who would liberate them from their enemies and their occupiers and would guard them. Here's what it says in Zechariah 9, 9 again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. I want you to underline this and pay attention. We want to break this down. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew tells us Jesus is this righteous king bringing salvation to the people. That's what he's doing. But let's notice the nature of Jesus' kingdom in this prophecy again. The king prophesied in Zechariah would be humble. Notice that? Notice that in Zechariah 9.9? Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. And here's his description, humble and mounted on a donkey. That, that, I don't, have we ever seen a president or any politician coming to Nashville, flying into the Nashville airport with humility? No. no. I mean, Nashville shuts. I remember when Al Gore was vice president. Every time he came home to Carthage, Nashville shut down. Y'all remember those years? Because <laughs> they had to clear the interstate for Al Gore to go home. And of course, the, the few times, even when President Trump was here a few, a few times over the last several years doing rallies and stuff, what happened to Nashville? It shut down. Jesus didn't shut things down. He was humble, riding on a donkey. The king prophesied would be humble. Have we not seen this theme throughout Matthew's gospel? Remember, as we've been going through Matthew's gospel, has there not been a consistent theme of humility all throughout the gospel? Matthew 23, verses 11 through 12, here's what Jesus said. The greatest among you, you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then in Matthew 19, verse 30, but 
Here's what Jesus says again, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then in Matthew 20, verse 16, we saw this. Jesus said, so the last will be first, and the first last. That, that constant theme of humility carries through here to Matthew 21 as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. The second point to see in Zechariah 9, 9, that Jesus brings righteousness and salvation. I don't want us to lose that point. His humility is evident, but what is he bringing? He's bringing righteousness and salvation. The salvation that many in the crowds that day imagined was was salvation from their political enemies and and their military enemies. But clearly the salvation that Jesus brings is that from the prison of sin brought upon us by the great enemy himself, Satan, who distorted God's perfect creation and we fell right into it. He's the great enemy that we, he's the greatest enemy we have, folks. And Jesus is bringing righteousness and salvation to save us from the burden of sin that we carry, to save us from the great enemy himself, Satan. His control is over us. I mean, the, the third point to see here in Zechariah 9, 9 is that Jesus rides on this beast of burden. Matthew's translation from the Septuagint. Remember, uh, another little sidebar, if you remember. Whenever the New Testament apostles and, and the gospel writers, the evangelists, cite the Old Testament, they're mostly citing what is called the Septuagint, which would have been the Greek translation of the Old Hebrew. I always say it this way. The Apostle Paul carried around the Septuagint as his Bible, just like you and I carry around the ESV or the King James. So that's why if there's a discrepancy in the wording from the Old Testament to the New, that's why. doesn't mean that there's a difference. It's just a different translation, right? So the third point here in Matthew, Matthew uses the Septuagint in, in Matthew 21.5. And when he says, the when Zechariah 9.9 says the foal of a donkey, Matthew says the foal of a beast of burden. Notice that little subtle nuance there? I mean, that's what a donkey is. It's a beast of burden. But it's interesting that the Septuagint emphasizes that, and that's why in the Greek, in Matthew, that's why it says that. But it's important to see. See, see the great priest king prophesied by Zechariah to reside in Jerusalem would carry the burden of all the people upon himself. The symbolism of the donkey and the colt implies what type of king Jesus would be. That's why he's doing this. Remember, he's publicly declaring his royalty here. But his royalty would be much different than a human king, human monarchy. Verses 6 through 8 of Matthew 21, the spreading of the cloaks on the two beasts and on the ground indicated submission to Jesus and an acknowledgement of his royalty. I'm not going to go into this too deep because there's another focus I want to have. But we see the same acts of humility of spreading out cloaks on the ground in 2 Kings chapter 9 when Jehu struck down the enemies of God. You want to take a note there? Go back to 2 Kings chapter 9. Jehu does this as he comes out. The people lay out their cloaks for him to walk on in honor and submission. But look here at verses 10 through 11. Let's close with this. Matthew 21, verses 10 through 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, 
The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What I want us to close here with is, is trying to understand exactly who Jesus is. And these verses here, verses 10 and 11, help us see more clearly Jesus's identity. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, here's the question, who is this? I mean, there may be people in this room right now, people who are listening to this right now. You may have the same question. Who is this? The point of the passage tells us who Jesus is. His great authority is the Son of God, the great priest king, the longed-for Messiah who is showcased here on this day in this grand triumphal entry as a king. The question from the crowds in the city strikes us today, doesn't it? Who is this? I mean, we, we, we belittled the, the authority of Christ to a nothing. He's just another name. And in, in this age of information, you realize we're, new, we're in a different age now. We're, we're in the age of information. Matter of fact, we're in the, now in this age of the image. That's what I'm, I'm reading about. All of the scholars are saying we're no longer in the age of reading and thinking. We're now in the age of the image. We communicate with images now more so than with language. What's that going to do to our perception of who Jesus is? Because we have so much depth here in God's word that we can meditate on and chew on. Yes, we can have mental images of what we are reading as we should. But if we cast out language for the image what does that do to our image of Christ? He's just going to blur into all the other images that we are bombarded with. That's why YouTube is so important or, or so popular. That's why Instagram is so popular. I mean, it, y'all admit, everyone is thinking, if you're on your phone and you're doing this with your thumbs scrolling, what, you're not reading anything, are you? So when I see people with their phones out in church and you tell me you're reading your Bible, I hope that's what you're doing. <laughs> but notice here in verses 10, uh, verse 11, the point of the passage is this question, who is this? The crowds were wondering. The crowds inside Jerusalem, when they heard the spectacle and they saw the spectacle outside the city gates, and as Jesus was coming in and the crowds were following in, the question is, who is this? Who is, this must be someone great to cause this grand of a spectacle. The answer comes in verse 12. The answer is, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Again, something that tells us of Jesus's insignificant origins and his humility. I mean, the declaration of Jesus as the great prophet is true enough, but not quite the full picture of who he is. I mean, their acknowledgement of this humble, of his humble origins in Nazareth, everybody knew about Nazareth. This further drives home the unique nature of the kingdom of God. If Jesus is tied to Nazareth as being from Nazareth, that further shows us the humble origins of the kingdom. The importance of the humble view of Nazareth can also be seen in John chapter 1 when Nathanael challenged Philip, when Philip comes to him and declares to Nathanael, look, come with us. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
And then Nathaniel's response to his friend Philip was not as praiseworthy. When Philip is declaring and praising, look, we have found the Messiah. You know what, Nath- you know what uh, Nathaniel's response to Philip was? John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? That was the, that was the attitude of Nazareth. It's kind of like if you say, you're from where in Mississippi? Right? I'm not, I'm not belittling anyone from Mississippi, but you understand, if we think of the, the lowest state of the union, Mississippi's pretty low. But here's the point. Nazareth was not seen with favor. And Jesus comes from there. Something great certainly did come from Nazareth, though, didn't it? I mean, God's divine wisdom and providence orchestrated this, the grand humility of Jesus' birth, of Jesus' life, of his ministry, and now the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. God's hand was controlling all of this. The great spectacle of that day, the great performance, if you will, of that day, the grand event of that day as Jesus comes to Jerusalem only drives home the point further that Jesus' kingdom was led by a humble king riding a humble beast of burden. Likewise, the citizens of the kingdom were also of humble nature. This is what I want us to walk away with here today. Jesus declared publicly on his entry into Jerusalem exactly who he was. He was the great king declared by Zechariah to arrive with righteousness and salvation. He was the humble king that Zechariah talks about. The one who sacrificed himself for all who did not deserve it. If we claim to be citizens of this kingdom, do we have the same nature? Do we have the same nature of humility and lowliness? Do we? I mean, we're Americans, folks. This is probably the single greatest struggle that American Christians have. We are not humble. When we do not get our way, we let people know we're not getting our way. Would you agree? That's the nature of the American spirit. And it is something that the Lord has used for the advancement of the kingdom because the American spirit is one of productivity and advancement and getting things done. That's what Americans do. And that, that, that point was driven home to me many times as I've done ministry, uh, missionary work overseas. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world look at the American Christian church with awe because when the one gift we can bring to them is we will help them get things done. And they even told me, I've even been told by pastors in India, we need your American get it done attitude. Help us. So God uses that. But then the flip side of that is it can be to our detriment too. You see where we're headed? You see the struggle? So in verse nine, the great crowds cried out as Jesus entered Jerusalem that day. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These crowds that day echoed the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Imagine the scene with me as Jesus enters the Jerusalem that day and the crowds are around him. Verse 9 tells us that a great crowd went before him and followed him. They were in front of him, and they were behind him. He was surrounded by a great crowd. He was in the midst of his people. 
You got that image in you, Brian? He was surrounded by his people. He was in the midst of them, just as Zechariah's prophecy said would happen. The great crowd was around him. The great crowd was before him, and the great crowd was following him. He was surrounded. His temple and his palace are not a building of stone with walls. He dwelt among his people, just as the Davidic covenant tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. Here's what God says to David. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. The imagery of God in the Old Testament with his people is he moved where they moved. Jesus is doing the same thing in this crowd as they're coming into Jerusalem. As they surround him, he's on this donkey and he is moving with the crowd as the crowd moves along. God's dwelling place has never been in a grand house. God's dwelling place has always moved with his people. Imagine the same dwelling and moving as Jesus is surrounded by the great crowds that day. Zechariah's prophecy was fulfilled indeed. I mean, the humble king brought righteousness and salvation, not walled apart from them, but instead moving along with his people as they moved toward him, as they surrounded him, going before him and following him. This is exactly what God wanted all along. I want my people to surround me. I want them to move with me and I move with them. Folks, you got that picture in your mind as Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, as Christians? Is that your understanding of who Jesus is. As we've come out of the Christmas season and focusing on the incarnation, remember Jesus is not an appendage to our lives. He is not an appendage, an attachment to our hearts. He consumes us with his very being. By assuming our sin and our weaknesses. You see the picture here as he's coming into Jerusalem? Physically and literally, he is consumed by the presence of his people as he is with them and they are with him. And they are moving as one mass into the Jerusalem city. Man, I'd love to have been there to see that. Wouldn't that be awesome? So here's the question in verse 10. Who is this? Who is this? I mean, this is Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the humble Lord of all sinners. This is Jesus Christ who desires to dwell among his people. This is Jesus, the son of Joseph, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee, where nothing good is known to come from. But oh, how God shows us all what a great king can do and what great a king can really come from Nazareth. Isn't that amazing? So let's keep this truth in mind. Let's keep this idea of who Jesus is as we transition now to worship at the Lord's table. Have this in your mind as, as we partake of the elements here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what I want to ask us today as we worship at the Lord's table. Have that forefront in your mind. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we thank you, Lord, for your word. More so, Father, I thank you that, that you have always interacted with 
your creation from the very beginning, even after the fall, you never abandoned us. You were always involved and always interacting with us and guiding human history for your purposes, even to this great moment of Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem. Thank you, Lord, for that reality and that truth so that we can understand how real you are. Father, I pray this morning as we transition to worshiping at your table, Lord, that you would cause us to pause and to imagine but also think about this day that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and why. Lord, how many of us in this room are actually a part of that same crowd that surrounded Jesus and longed to be near him? Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts this morning. Stir stir the truth within us. Reveal to us where we stand before you. In Jesus' name, amen.